the greatest damage has been done by independent India and its approach to our tradition. To a lesser extent, I would say the European rule. As the least impactful was Islamic rule. Namaste. Um, I'm with uh, Anand Prasad. Anand is a, a corporate lawyer, runs his own practice. He was the co-founder of Tri Legal. Uh, we met after um, he watched a couple of uh, Sangam talks and then reached out to me and then we got sort of talking uh, about very, very interesting subjects. He's been a speaker with us a couple of times on a couple of topics. Um, Anand and my conversations in his office here have been, you know, very profound and very interesting. And I thought that some of these thoughts and sort of conversations would be very useful for our audience in bringing new perspectives about uh, India, Indian spirituality, our traditions, culture, um, things around Murti Puja, temples, uh, Vedas, Agam Shastras, you know, a whole lot of things which I, I or you may not agree with Anand all the time, which is absolutely fine. But there are new perspectives for us to, to you know, maybe be open to or learn about. So that's why I thought these conversations would be very useful to bring out um, in, in public space. Thanks, Raul. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, it's, it's going to be a pleasure having this conversation and we have had some of those in the past. Uh, so it will be interesting to see how some of these comes up on recordings as you put them up on, on Sangam Talks. So Anand, um, how did you get into, what got you interested? Corporate lawyer and spirituality generally don't, you're a musician as well. But let's talk about, and Trek. <laughs> but let's talk about your um, tryst with Indian spirituality if you like. How did you get into this? So I can, I can, I can fairly fairly comfortably say that there was a part of my family that was uh, fairly traditional. Um, my dad was specifically more spiritual uh, in various ways. Uh, but I grew up in what we would think as modern India. So modern India believed that everything that came from Indian, Indian traditional perspectives was superstition. Um, and it was bogus and what was relevant was what we learned out of the scientific world, uh, out of the rational world and that is really what is relevant. Uh, what came from the past and what people talked about in terms of Indian spirituality and tradition is good. I mean let people fool themselves if they like doing that and let them enjoy themselves and so they are entitled to do that and that was the approach that I had uh, for a very long time. But at the same time, I used to be very interested in uh, astronomy as well. So watching the stars, um, looking at constellations in the sky, um, looking, looking at how the earth had undergone various changes through the ice ages and things like that. Uh, and it slowly dawned and, and I was very scientifically inclined. So I did my basic graduation in sciences and in applied physics. Um, so I was very interested as I sort of started no noticing this sort of crossover between cutting edge science and what I had heard uh, in the traditional context. Uh, 
and in my mind it it's sort of that that co-relationship became more and more interesting now i was very involved with my corporate legal practice which leaves very little time to do too much else uh, but whatever little time that i had i would speak to people i would read up stuff uh, i would try and correlate different things together uh, and for me it was a very interesting fascinating journey uh, which most of my friends outwardly could not make out that I would do things like that or I would think of things in those manner and I would live the, live the life of a very typical modern Indian person, uh, extremely westernized in their, in their outlook and upbringing. But, but it, I could sort of constantly see those connections uh, and then as I explored it more and more, I saw cutting edge science, uh, how it how it sort of grew so close to what we what is taught in the Indian traditions or what is preached in the Indian traditions or spoken of in Indian traditions. Um, I mean, there would be things like timelessness uh, or time came into existence. Um, and when I think of the universe or Einsteinian physics, so the difference between Newtonian physics and Einsteinian physics and then onwards is Newtonian looked at our world just in terms of matter and three dimensions. But Einstein suddenly turned around and said that gravity was not actually one body pulling the other, but it was one body traveling along space-time curvature. Now, all of us understand what is space, but how does time curve? Uh, and as soon as you get into relativity, you start seeing how, how time curves or how time could change. A lot of science fiction comes out of traveling back in time, right from the time when I was in school, which was back to the future and things like that. Um, but it was how time curved and how time could change and how time itself was a variable. So just like you could travel length or breadth, you could also travel time. Therefore, time also could be a zero. And it was always way, and they are different in theoretical physics, you have these conversations around how sometimes you might view the universe as we see it today. We think of Big Bang as an expansion of matter, but maybe it's just expansion of a new dimension called time. Uh, and maybe the rest of it always existed. Um, now, what time does is time also allows you to realize distance. Because when you think of distance, when you think of speed, it is always in the, in, it's in the context, it's in the reference of time. Um, and so therefore, if just time came into existence, your whole experience of the universe would undergo a change. What's the parallel with Indian spirituality? Where do Now, Indian spirituality talks about how the entire universe and everything from the past and the future coexists at the same time. Which essentially means that what... If it coexists, then the only reason we see this moment as this moment and that moment which has gone by as the previous moment is because we have traveled a long time. So if you take time out of this discussion, then what we spoke about two minutes back and our conversation just now is actually all in the same space. It all always coexists. So it's always already done. It's already done, it is there present and the future also exists today. Now this is a concept that comes from Indian tradition. Where does this show up? It's in various traditions. So you will find various spiritual traditions as you, when you, when you go out of the normal ritualistic practice and you get into these philosophical debates, you will find um, 
it is consistent in various places where they talk about the nature of universe or the nature of existence. So we don't use, we use slightly different words uh, in the Indian tradition, but they will talk about the nature of existence. And one of the functions of nature of existence, they will say that everything is present at the same time, except observationally you see it, see it at different times. Uh, I can't quote the scripture directly, but it is for most people that do scriptural studies, it's a non-debatable issue. I mean, it is there, it's the underlying nature of what, uh, what is. Uh, I didn't know that. I knew about the, uh, <clears throat> from relativity of time, the, the days of Brahma versus the, uh, you know, so I don't know who went into Brahma's space, came back in one day. I don't know that story. You, do you know what I'm talking about? One day came back yeah. and everything on earth had changed some yeah. 600 years or something had passed. I don't know the story, but... So, including things like that. So, that's one story. It's not only in Indian tradition. It's there in some other traditions as well. It's there in the Semitic traditions as well. Um, so, it's in the Sumerian traditions as well, where somebody goes off into the world of God uh, in, in that context, comes back to earth and actually sees that the earth has changed. But, but these concepts have existed throughout. Uh, and then as I thought of it more and more, what I realized is we have in the last 100 odd years made this, we have 150, maybe 200 years, broken up the idea of science and religion. Uh, and for large parts of human history, they, were, they actually meant the same thing. Um, so you, there was nothing called science or material science that you practiced for your real world and religion was something separate. So religion is part of what got you to do what you did. Um, sometimes even the phrase religion was not used. So in the Indian context, you did not think of yourself as religious. There, was, there were people having different schools, different philosophies would have those conversations. We didn't, for example, we didn't even call ourselves Hindu. So there was no need to call ourselves anything. They were just like there was no need for the Greeks to name their religion anything. It was just what it was. Or for the Egyptians to name their religion anything. It was just what it was. I mean, nobody, you don't need to have a name. As we got into this sort of segmentation of, I would say, the experience of our universe, uh, we then decided physics and we separated biology from it and separated mathematics from it. And we sort of, it helped us in various ways. We understood the world much better. Uh, but in a lot of the older traditions, a lot of these blend with each other. So, for example, when you look at Ayurveda, Ayurveda will mix biology, chemistry, mathematics, physics, everything will come mixed. Um, and what we call religion is also mixed in Ayurveda. So, it, it is a clear demonstration of how we in the modern world have gotten stuck into this A religion, B religion and we think of science as rationality. Uh, but through most of human history, the experience of what we describe as religion was rational. Uh, it delivered what it promised and where it didn't deliver what it promised, then there was somebody else that was promising to deliver and you just shift and go to the next guy. Um, it's like in today's world, it's like modern products. I mean, why will you buy an iPhone and why would you not buy a cheap, um, I wouldn't get into nationalities, but just a cheap phone. Because iPhone can do much more for you. And that's the reason why you buy it. 
which is why through tradition you will actually see and including in Indian tradition you had to go and seek out nobody was distributing it free for you and the question of anybody trying to force you to become knowledgeable was out of the question so you had to actually toil to get that in because it enhanced your life you had to toil to get an iPhone you had to toil to get a car um, you had to make that effort so the whole idea when we say that our tradition did not use force it's not a question that did not use force you had to come begging to me to get that knowledge to enhance your own self um, I remember you remind me now of one of the talks of uh, Anand Venkatraman where uh, he talks about a contemporary of Jiddu Krishnamurti uh, so I remember another Krishnamurti I think G Krishnamurti or somebody uh-huh. and uh, he goes to Ramana Maharshi and says you have enlightenment can you give it to me very arrogance full of knowledge intellect and Ramana Maharshi says that I can give it to you, but can you take it? Do you have supatrata? Yeah. I think that's where you have to be prepare yourself for taking it also. Yeah. Being able and and think of it like this. It is we tend to, I mean, we have I mean, maybe the fault lies in some of the way we have approached what we call religious concepts. We think that it is easy. Every time I you think as if you are doing a great favor to religion by turning to religion. I'm using the term religion in a sort of loser manner. Uh, But think of it as if you want to be a nuclear physicist. You can't just say that I want to be a nuclear physicist and suddenly nuclear physics doesn't dawn on you. You've got to make a huge effort to get in there. Uh, You will fail exams. You will get chucked out of university. Some of you will make it. This is what will happen. So when you think of traditional what we again describe as religion, when we talk of Indian tradition, a lot of, and I'm not the only one who says it, lots of people see it like that, is scientific, is, is technological. It is, and technology is not just mechanical technology. I mean, technology can be used, you can use technology in various ways, um, that phrase. So I want to come to the technology and deliver it in just a little bit. But um, you said something interesting that you have to toil to get there, but that's not, uh, so earlier you made the comparison of, uh, you brought up Semitic religions, but Semitic religions are, there is no toiling, you basically just follow the book. So that that is a clear distinction between say Indian traditions and maybe perhaps other uh, ancient Native American traditions or so there are some, I would say, there are certain, now when we talk about Hinduism, it, we basically sure. we, we no, cast no, a very no. wide net. Yeah. But there, is, there are some Indian traditions and sometimes they get mistakenly viewed as bhakti. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some elements of bhakti where it has been taught by some people that as long as you fall on the feet of God, then everything will be achieved. Um, now that's the same approach that the Semitic guys have. Just accept whatever is there. Question nothing and you will get whatever is meant to be given. And if you don't get it, then don't question God because God has his own wisdom. In our bhakti traditions, we have somewhat of a similar approach where we say, uh, just fall at the Lord's feet and everything will be available to you. So there are certain Indian traditions that also have that kind of an approach. The difference being when, when you look at at least our experience of Semitic uh, religions or religions that have come out of the Middle East, um, 
we we overwhelmingly continue to view it as one that has come through invasions but then before the invasions the invasions earlier started i would say in terms of religious invasions started in the 10,000, 7, 700, 800, 900 in minor ways and the big ones started coming in about 1180. Uh, but these traditions have come to India much before. So, for example, there are stories, now people debate it whether it uh, ever happened, but there are stories of St. Thomas who showed up in India. Uh, there are the Syrian Orthodox that showed up in India. Uh, they have a very different approach to, um, to, to what came with the Europeans much later. Uh, similarly, various kinds of Islam and you will see that it happened through trade routes and part of trading resulted in some of that. Uh, is that various parts of, I mean various elements of Islam came to India and there were parts, there were communities that sort of partly turned Islamic. Uh, so, for example, like we have with the Sikh community in North India where your eldest son would become a Sikh, there are communities in Kerala where you would say one son would become a Muslim uh, in that family. The rest of them would be… That created the Moplas family. No. So, so it's a mix of what, but, but that created particularly amongst the fishermen community, they were Muslim fishermen. The thinking was also somehow that if you're Muslim, you're better at seafaring. Uh, so, again think of it like this, they are thinking, when you say you are better at seafaring, you are saying somehow you technologically enhance yourself to become a boatman. That is the approach that traditionally India has had. Then we had the encounter with invasions, um, like the way Amish describes it, he, he says, you call the Turkic invasions as Islamic invasions, but you actually never call European rule as Christian rule. So that's the error I think that we make, is that we were certainly invaded. We were not invaded by religion, we were invaded by a people and they were invaders. Uh, I, I would debate that but uh, we leave that uh, true, for another, true, true. another conversation. And, and like Amish says, they actually looked also different. So yes. they looked uh, Mongolite, uh, those guys. They did not look like a Hrithik Roshan or did not look like a Prithviraj Kapoor. <laughs> and here we make Akbar a Hrithik Roshan. Uh, true, true, true. So, so that's, that's where we sort of… In, in a modern world, we tend to have lost those nuances. Uh, in popular history, we tend to have lost those nuances. I mean, you have to be a real historian to appreciate that actually that might not be Hrithik Roshan. Akbar did not look like Hrithik Roshan. Um, so, they have, they, we, we have had these uh, invasion sort of um, situations where they came with we got the greater push from the Semitic religions through those invasions and therefore we tend to think of them like that. But there were Indian traditions that say that go and fall, fall at feet. Now, in my head, the way I think of it is that what do the Semitic religions do? They are essentially preaching a kind of bhakti. Uh, they are saying just surrender yourself completely. Uh, and that's a tradition well known in the Indian context, complete surrender. Now, when you create institutions out of religion, of, out of philosophy, then you have to create institutional structures and just like our mathas, there's a lot of politics that happens over there. Just similarly, the church will have, the mosque will have, so they will have a lot of polit politics. You have to, in some ways, separate the politics from uh, the philosophical uh, approach. But when you look at the core philosophy, it is a bhakti kind of tradition, 
which functions on surrender. Uh, Except and, that it is exclusivist in a manner, and maybe we can address that and, at a later. And, and and correct. So it's not. It's not. I don't think. I mean, it it's only for say the ummah. Whoever has converted will go to he heaven. Otherwise, there is so, hell for everybody so, else. So so it is like saying that. Um, I'm not drawing an analogy just now, but let me just address it directly, uh, in the sense that it. The, the preaching was that when you do complete surrender, you attain whatever is to be attained. But unlike the bhakti tradition, the preaching was also, and you have to see, at least I see it in the context of when this preaching started, it, they were pagan systems. I mean, a lot of our systems, as you could describe them as pagan in nature. The pagan guys were more powerful, were wealthier, would beat up these fellows on a regular basis. So. As a combination, I would think partly of wanting to protect yourself because sometimes people say attack is the best that, form that of defense. That is exactly what was happening in Mecca and all of that. True, 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 true. So, so attack is the best form of defense. So you start doing that. Then you start enjoying attack. Uh, and then attack, when you start winning, has other collateral benefits. Um, so you start enjoying those collateral benefits. You then use... As invaders, you start using it as a tool. Now, the basic preaching tells you that try and convert as many because you see you have enjoyed taking a certain path. You have enjoyed the benefits of that path. Now, there are multiple paths. Yeah. But you have not enjoyed those multiple paths. Those are theory for you. Practical experience has been of one particular path. So, you then... In theology, you start telling your followers that this path is what we need to spread because what you're trying to do, it is sometimes coming out of kindness. You actually want others to experience your experience. Yeah, which is the, I mean, Christians actually think that the world will go to hell and I'm trying to save the world. And Mother so, Teresa worked like that. So, so initially, when I think of the historical Jesus as against... The modern Jesus, the historical Jesus, who was basically black hair and had brown eyes or black eyes and was Semitic, was not blonde and did not have blue eyes. Uh, when I think of him, when I think of the prophet Mormon, uh, they were trying to communicate what they had experienced. Uh, and their view must have been that I have had this experience, I have had this experience following this path. I would really, and it comes out of a sense of love or fondness for other people, that I would like you guys to experience it. So your basic preaching at that stage is, and remember this is stage, so this is stage-wise it changes, the preaching changes. So the very basic stage, when these teachers were there, they are doing a rather kindness of that. They want to bring in as many people. So they, the instruction is, change as many, convert as many as you can because this is the true path. And the reason why you say it is the true path is it is your experience that that is the true path. The others are theories, others you have not experienced. So you basically say this is the true path. In this you get attacked by somebody else. So it then gets combined with push them back and push them back because they don't understand the true path. And therefore, if you, can, if you can get them onto your side, you no longer will be at loggerheads. So, so it's morphed from just saying that this is an excellent experience to have. 
it is morphed from there to the next level which says that push them because they are attacking us but then if you can convert them to our side then actually there is no reason for that conflict. And then it just goes, so you know, then I know you, then it progresses and then it just progresses becomes a further. completely so, invasive ideology. Correct, correct. Then yeah. it progresses further from there where somebody says, see because you have to always, everybody is not the prophet. So they are, greed steps in. No, no, but even, even Muhammad. Uh, yeah, correct, correct. And he, behavior to, was, to be fair to him, not so. he always said, I am a normal man. The greatness of the prophet in his, is in his perspective that he is a normal man. It is uh, the normal man can do so much is his greatness. If you were great and you did great things, nothing is no big deal. You are not great. You are saying I am not great. Do not treat me as special. Because what he is also communicating is all of us are normal and all of us can get there. Now what happens but is that's so, completely. Uh, I know. So he's he's saying that I have all the feelings. No, no, but that's completely contradictory to the idea that I am the prophet. I mean, tomorrow I so, start claiming so, I am the prophet. So, but but in the Indian tradition, all of us are capable of rising to godliness or godhood or whatever. So right? so so, he says I am the prophet, and he says that he is not saying that nobody else can experience Allah. So, the, so that, the last no, he's saying I'm the last prophet. Uh-huh. He's not saying that nobody else can experience Allah. Oh, okay. But is that, does that come out? So, mm-hmm. so he, but he's not said it. Okay, so he, He's not said it. it. So, so what he's saying is that this is the path of Allah and everybody can come up there. So moving away from that, what I'm describing is how it sort of evolves into a, into the experience that we had on the Indian subcontinent. Yeah. I mean, this will become that, a very controversial. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so after that comes economics, after that comes greed, after that comes the need for plunder, for need to impose yourself on somebody else. These are typical of, every, I mean, there are people all around the world that have had those desires. So you then, it this gets mixed up and it comes. So we experience it in a slightly different way. All I'm trying to say is in its essence, it is a bhakti tradition. In its essence, Christianity is a bhakti tradition. In its essence, India has lots of bhakti traditions. My sense is, and, but a lot of us talk about it, but we don't live it. So a lot of us talk about it as, oh, India had had so many traditions, many of them were scientific. Or let's take a more recent example that irritates me. All of us say that we have multiple lives, this reincarnation, karma, this, that and the other. So, by that logic, you should not be so terrified of death. Uh, but right from a government onwards, everybody is happy to impose a complete lockdown on ourselves, a complete imposition on our freedoms, because you did not want to die. So the fear of death was so extreme, uh, is that it is almost Semitic in its uh, in its approach. Is that uh, like Devdath Patnaik would say, the difference, key difference is those guys have their perspective because they believe they have only one life and they have a judgment. Our perspective is different. We have a chaltaya attitude because we believe we have many shots at uh, getting there. So we have multiple lives. And that is where I see the influence having come in, where we have gotten some of our bhakti tradition because similar to their tradition, they sort of came together in some ways. Uh, and you'll find that blend, whether it is in the nature of Sikhism or the Kapi and all that. So there is a blend that happens. 
Sufism sort of evolved here perhaps. Yes, it may be a little Turkic tradition, but it perhaps evolved here. So whether some would say it is a Saudi tradition came from the deserts of Saudi Arabia and the Sufa was... So, yeah, was, some even say uh, pre-Islamic. Uh, so, so correct. Um, uh, so Sri M has got a very interesting talk on the Sufis and uh, the Sufis. Um, so it sort of, uh, it came in and somehow we sort of absorbed some of those ideas. Um, so we have we've always done. So whatever it worked at this point in time, so we absorbed. And I don't have a problem with our absorbing that. But we must recognize that that is what has happened. Um, so we then absorbed some of those ideas. We also started thinking ourselves. And somehow you will see that bhakti has gained this kind of predominance in the Indian Hindu thought process. Uh, that it has actually pushed everything back. So you will have people say that there are six schools of Hinduism. One of them, sub-school is bhakti. It's, you know, bhakti is all, not only, it's not even one of the six schools. It is a one-third component of... You mean Mimamsa, Vaishika? Correct, correct. So we'll say Mimamsa, we'll say Vaishashika, we'll say Samkhya, we'll say Nyaya. But none of us actually know what Samkhya is in any great amount of detail. None of us know what Nyaya is. And so you will find little bit. But you ask what bhakti is or... Every, because we actually live the bhakti tradition. Yeah, yeah but it's a very, uh, um, you know, sorry for saying this, um, especially on camera, but it's a very, uh, very rudimentary, I don't know for lack of better word, a little bit irritating also in, in some ways, to be honest, that, you know, just the bhakti is, it's not Meera's bhakti, that is just completely different level or, or Ramakrishna, he's, He's seeing Kali, but this bhakti is about almost like saying, I will leave my intellect aside. So I will junk it and say, I will fall at your feet. Now, in some ways, I see Islam like that. So that is a tragedy. No logic. That I believe is a tragedy of India. Is that when you look through history, forget about medieval area. That's where medieval periods is where you will find a lot of the bhakti tradition scenes. 800 or onwards started from southern India and then sort of also was there on the north. But for most parts of historical India, bhakti was a very minor component. The question that I, has always sort of come to my head is why is it so minor and why is it so predominant today? Is because, and that's where I sort of partly alluded to it in the past when I said it is somewhat similar to the Semitic, is the way we perceive bhakti today is actually the way it would be perceived in Christianity or Islam. Yes, it, it is, it is, they are the ideas of faith. Yes. So, the terms faith, belief are not, I don't think there is any Indian language that has words for those. Faith. But including our spiritual teachers, when they preach today, they use those words. Now, those words are alien to us. Uh, so, when we, our nature of bhakti was that you would experience, you would experience the deity. Our approach to this was, do not accept something because people say it. You either have the experience, you have not had the experience. So the, the English phrase, the proof of the pudding lies in its eating. So if I have not eaten it, I can ignore it. 
if I would like to eat it, I need to make an effort to eat it. But ultimately, having made the effort, if it is not there, forget about it. Just go in another direction. That's not for you then. So I would actively reject a tradition. You would reject a tradition. So you would go down a path if it's not delivering to you. So our entire approach was delivery oriented. What is delivery? Now, you could deliver, like Sadhguru says, do you want solace or solutions? Right? So a lot of the delivery these days is about solace. So, I find that so hollow. So, for some people, it will be, I want solace. For some people, I will want solution. Yes. But for a vast majority of people, sometimes I will want solace and some mostly I will want solutions. solutions yes. This is the reality of who we are. It is not a binary. Okay. It is not this or that or it's not. Go for what you want at that point in time. Seek out, like like I say, seek seek out your solution. Got it, exactly. Now seek out the solution. So, you know, in all our conversations, Anand, I've always found you, and you just did also, use the word delivery and technology. So, in some ways, maybe, maybe this is a good time to divert or progress to those type of, what is technology in India? What is the solution that we, we find? See, it what is, is delivered so to let's, people let's in say, problems? I, let, let me describe it in a very elementary term and you'll say that we don't make fun, fun of it. But let me describe it like this. I want to eat kheer. So what are the various ways of eating kheer? So I can either learn to make kheer and make the kheer. I can get somebody else to make the kheer. I can go to the market and buy kheer. Various ways. So I can, the second one is I get the ingredients, get somebody to make it if I don't know. In each one of these, the kheers could taste is different. One day I could make, if I am in the first category, making my own kheer. One day it will taste different, next day it could taste different. Third day I will get bored, I will make a change. When I use the phrase delivery or technology, it is in that context. Is I want to eat kheer. The process of making here is what I describe as technology. Now, there is, when you say, when I use the term science, you have to think of it in terms of, it is interchangeable with the word process. So, process or technology. So, to get the key, I need to follow a process. Sometimes that process will deliver better key. Sometimes, for some reason, it will deliver inferior key. Sometimes, it will just hit the spot. It will vary and what you want, let's say uh, when, you, when you look at, let's, for ease of reference, I will use the word religion. So when you talk about religious practices, so where do we, where do we require religion? So in traditionally where the way we would require religion is uh, I would say for many people, there is a need to connect with something beyond the human realm. Um, and I would say in that context, you will say you are talking about solace because there is one element, like I said, is solace oriented. So that's where you establish connection. Another could be, God, let me pass in my exam. Uh, another one would be, God, let me not get COVID uh, or God let me, if I have fallen ill, let me recover, let me have a child, let me get a job. Now these are all functional desires that I want. 
there is one human level of effort that I can make, but there is only up to so much that I can do. There is only so much hand sanitizing and mask wearing that I can do to avoid COVID. How else? Now, that's where in Indian tradition, I'm not saying to avoid COVID, but to get to some of these things, a process has been established. If you, in my, my limited experience, if you were to follow the process fully, it will almost certainly assure you an outcome. Now, the thing is, we don't understand the process in its entirety. And that is true for modern medicine. You say medicine is science. But can a doctor cure you every time you go? Does the doctor sometimes cure you 100%? Sometimes he, cures, he or she cures you 80%, sometimes 60%, sometimes complete failure. That doesn't mean you stop thinking of doctor as science or medicine as science. Now, similarly, there, is, there could be a process that is established, let's say, and our process has been established to very specific outcomes. So, for example, I want it to rain. I want a better crop. Um, I want greater wealth. Um, I want to win a war. So, these processes were established where if you do those particular processes, which in our sense is ritual, but ritual is not just you do the ritual. What we tend to forget is that ritual has also got to be performed in a context. So, like a scientific physics experiment, you have to have ideal laboratory conditions for it to function fully to perfection. But the modern world doesn't make availability laboratory conditions. So, there will be variations. Um, now, you can't look at a variation and say, oh, that is bogus. You Somehow, we have in... And I think it's essentially primarily coming again. Uh, I'm not wanting to ridicule them, but it is a function. It's a factual thing that the Semitic religions gave you such an absolute that if you go to God, then this will happen 100%. Um, is that we, te we have tended to carry that idea of 100% delivery. Uh, and if it is not 100%, if it is 90, we tend to ridicule it for the lack of 10 not realizing that like any process in life, like any science in life, there is nothing called 100% delivery. Sometimes you may get it, but you will not, not always get it. Uh, that does not make it a process. That does not make it a science. Now, in modern India, what has happened is that we tend to think as that the greatest devastation to Indian or use the word Hindu tradition. I don't agree with Hinduism being one religion, but uh, but for, again, ease of reference, the Hindu tradition, we say that the greatest blow was Islamic invasions and the destruction that they brought about. Yeah, the, the, British Raj, the British Raj, the British Raj, huge destruction. I actually see it differently. So, the way I see it, again, I go back to proof of the pudding lies in its eating. So, the invaders came and caused havoc. They destroyed almost everything. Now, that invasion lasted, let's say, from... 1100 AD till about until the Europeans came 16, 1500 AD. 15, 1600 AD, sometime that. I mean, period. Aurangzeb was wreaking havoc on the ah, country correct, till he, correct, till the correct. Marathas killed him. Correct, correct. So, so you say that's the period. At the end of 1700, look at where Hinduism was. 
and I would say Hinduism was very robust despite the destruction. And I'll, I'll, I'll have an hypothesis for why that is so. Um, but then came 200, 250 years of European rule or British rule. You look at from then until 1947 where India got independent. I would say when India got independent, again, I would say Hinduism was fairly robust. Now you talk about 2020 and you will see that it's actually disappeared effectively. So I'd say the greatest damage has been done by independent India and its approach to our tradition. To a lesser extent, I would say the European rule as the least impactful was Islamic rule or uh, Turkic rule. In, in, in order of in, in magnitude. Order of, in order of magnitude. So these 70 years have wrecked unbelievable havoc because this is where since the time I was in school and I'm sure when you were in school, we were taught this superstition, superstition. Superstition means only idiots are superstitious. So if you're not an idiot because you wanted to prove that you are not an idiot, you would not follow a superstition. So going to a temple these days is like look down upon. You look down you go upon to a temple? Oh. Idiot. Idiot. Yeah. So alright, we'll say because we are, we are a free country, you are entitled to. It's a right. You want to indulge in stamp collection, you want to indulge in coin collection, you want to indulge in going to a temple, feel free. But don't tell me that you're a genius by going to, uh, by doing stamp collection or by going to a temple. So it's, you've actually ridiculed, you brought it to that level. Yeah. That's our modern Indian thinking because that is how we have taught ourselves. Modern India has taught herself. We have therefore come out of tradition and religion. Again, I say when I use the term religion, it's not in the typical manner. I'm, I'm using that phrase. So today what has happened is lot of modern Indians who, who tend to look at Indian culture and Indian tradition and so we do Diwali or we do some pujas, we do Durga Puja. We see it, it has become a cultural event for us. It is no longer a religious event. It's not a spiritual event. We are not connecting with the deity anymore. So we are there because we are Indians. We wear saris because we are Indians or we wear Indian traditional clothes because we are Indians. But there is no internal connect. And my sense is that the need for that internal connect has been broken. Essentially by independent India. I agree. I agree absolutely. But you see they inherited or Nehru who... who the father of modern India is truly um, him in some sense instead of Gandhi or whatever. But this, I mean, he was basically a brown-skinned white. So everything he wanted to ridicule, he's actually gone on wrote, if I'm not wrong, in Discovery of India that he would he abhors the the erotic sculptures and Khajuraho and would want to break them. They cause discomfort to him. I mean, that's the cultural rootedness of the man. Oh, true, who, true. So, but that is him. So, but let's... let's but he's let's, inherited that from the British, let's, really. Let, let, let's therefore see, uh, let's see when I think of Nehru, uh, specifically. So, I'm not thinking Nehru as just one individual. I'm thinking of Nehru as a 
political class that existed so, at one point in time. In, uh, well, there was also KK Munshi and others, but he never allowed anybody to come forward or Sardar Patel or anybody. But that so, is democracy, no? If I win, then you are lost. There was no democracy actually. Had it to be, had it to prevail, <laughs> Sardar Patel would have built Somnath Temple and probably built Ram Mandir and built but, Kashi Vishwanath. But then Sardar Patel took a step back. Yeah, that's because of that wonderful man called Gandhi. But ultimately, if you take a step back, it has its consequence. Know, yeah. So you should not take the step back. Yes. See, there, there is no, because we were forgiving, because we were willing to accept, there is a consequence to everything that you do and you don't. A very good, profound thought, right? Now, we glorify Sardar Patel, especially under the Modi government. But, I mean, just his decision of stepping back, just because of Gandhi's asking him to step back, I mean, he was very, very culturally rooted. He would have created a different type of India, perhaps. But the consequence of him stepping back has been huge. Yes, very good. So, so, so that's, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, it's not, yes, uh, so. it is now for us who, who, who can bring back what I think, what we can push back against what has happened to us. Uh, but when I think in terms of Nehru, um, coming specifically to Nehru, think of how did the Indian masses See, I'm part Brahmin, so some of my relatives will forgive me, but the Brahminical class, the Brahminical class had a kind of moral authority on the Indian population that the Indian population blindly trust and follow them. Uh, we tend to, in today's discourse, tend to think in terms of Brahmin atrocities, but actually if you look back properly at history, Brahmins did not do so much atrocity. Brahmin had moral leadership. Uh, the atrocities were committed by other communities, uh, which were ruling classes. Uh, it was not Brahminical atrocity. So the Brahmins had somehow a hold on the Indian population that transgressed logic. Um, and so when a Brahmin Prime Minister and his Brahminical leadership said that this is what we need to do, a lot of India was willingly open to that idea. So, so you are saying that people looked up at Nehru as a Brahmin? He was, he was called Panditji. A uh, lot of Indian political leadership was Brahmanical. And that was the reason Mahatma, the Rishihood almost given to Mahatma Gandhi. So maybe Mahatma deserved Rishihood. I am not, I am not getting into that. But this is as a matter of fact, not out of prejudice. I think there are some terrific things that Nehru did. Um, but he had this approach. The reason why Indian population got sucked into that approach. And when I say Indian population, it was not just the last man. So, society structured along different levels. So, the people were in immediate interaction with the leadership immediately post-independent India would get influenced. And then below them would get influenced. So, that sort of percolated down. Um, and again... We tend to forget that it was not only, it's not only that he was following, yes, he loved um, the English approach uh, and he was in love with the English approach. One said that I am an accidental Hindu, uh, I, I deplore Hinduism, uh, so, so I am more culturally Islamic and religiously, I think something like that he said. So good for him, I mean, I mean he is entitled to do all of that, uh, say all of that, good for him. Except we got sucked, that our populations and our systems got sucked into that process. And I would think it's because he had this moral hold. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying it came only because of his caste. 
but caste certainly did help him. Um, that's why we use the phrase Pandiji for him. Um, there is, even in modern India today, there's been a pushback, but there is still a bit of a hold. Um, so, say, if, if somebody, you look at many of your speakers on Sangam Talks, the thought leadership comes from a certain section of society. Absolutely. It's not as if it's exclusive only to that. It comes from other sections of society as well, but those are in minority. It primarily comes through a certain section of society. Now, that is what had the impact, I would say, on India as it stands today. So, through our establishment, through our education system, nobody forced it down, but you just bought into it. Uh, the principals bought into it, the teachers bought into it, our parents bought into it. Uh, and therefore, we started, we had a certain slightly different view of who we were. Uh, we tended to, we, we lost the idea that we were process oriented. We were scientifically oriented or, or technologically oriented. We gravitated towards, because of that kind of leadership, to say that we are essentially, you took, because bhakti was there in the past, you took bhakti and you blended it into the form of bhakti that came from the invaders or the rulers at that time. And you grew, therefore, an idea of a new kind of bhakti. In my view, the reason why bhakti was a minor tradition earlier is it is probably the hardest thing to get. Because it is easy to experience a cup of hot coffee. It is extremely difficult to experience a being in another realm. And that bhakti came only out of that direct ability to interact. And now you may say that I am fooling myself. It's only happening in my head. But like in the matrix, everything happens in your head. The universe could get, the world could get created because there are electrical impulses that get sent to your brain uh, that create an illusion of a world for you. And that is then your truth. So if there are a certain kind of impulses in my head, then that is my truth. In, in the beautiful mind, if John Nash experienced three other guys operating with him which nobody else can see, but John Nash is also a Nobel Prize winner. It is his truth. For you, he's hallucinating. But it is his truth. So, we tend to, I can't, I mean, you can always ridicule somebody's own experience of that nature and say that it is ridiculous. There is no evidence of it. Now, let's, let me therefore come back to this one before. This has its roots, this separation of religion uh, with with spiritual separation of science from religion has its roots in Christianity in the Crusades and the so I would I, I I I would say and I I may not be fully accurate with this I think the separation happened either immediately prior to or immediately at the time of Charles Darwin so the difference was all science before that used to be part of the church. Or it was heresy, or it was heretical. So you, if you challenge the idea of God, you were heretical. But otherwise, lot of science in the Western world was part of what the Church propagated. And the Church always said God created man. So there was Charles Darwin suddenly came and said that you grew out of apes. Now that was bought into so emphatically within society that there was a need to say that all right. This is a different technique 
by which you understand humanity that theory of evolution and religion is different. So a clear split began in my head to happen at that point in time. It's not only my head, it came onto my head also because I researched it a bit. But lots of people say that if you Google the split between religion and science, you'll get these ideas. So that's the time frame in which this split happened. Uh, but I was, what was I coming to before we got into this? Um, in terms of bhakti and in terms of how we experience uh, these beings. Now, the question is, I may say my puja does this impact or I may say I have this experience of a deity or I may say ABCD. Now, let's say you, you ask yourself the question, maybe you're imagining it. Maybe it's not true. So if you have to, you have to keep questioning. Part of our underlying philosophical is keep questioning everything. So even if I experience that there's a chair there, make sure that there's a chair there. And that's the approach that, at least in my head, comes about. That's the approach that I have in conversation. Yeah, with process also comes repeatability. Repeatability, absolutely. Now, now repeatability, and I would take it one step further, comes mathematics. So if I can mathematically prove that the chair is there, then the chair is there. I don't care if you can see it or not. If it is there, it is there. Mathematically, if I can prove that time curves, you can live in a Newtonian scientific world and say time doesn't curve because you don't experience the curvature of time. But then you feel free, happy to live in medieval science because I am going towards cutting edge science. Everything that you have, everything that you enjoy today, whether it's computers, it's your phones, it is everything in modern world comes out of cutting edge science. And more and more of it is coming out of cutting edge science. Cutting edge science functions on the basis that they are one infinite dimensions and they could be debated over whether they are 9 or 6 or 7 or 8 or 11 or infinite. But mathematics functions on the basis of infinite dimensions. Uh, and mathematics clearly functions on the basis that time is dimension. So our experience of time is it is linear, it goes at the same speed and it goes only in one direction. There is, there is no shift over there. But in maths it shifts. And once I can prove that in maths it shifts, then the mathematics trumps your personal experience. So in the modern cutting-edge scientific world, the math, as I say, needs to prove it. What's the, what's the similarity over there? Now, we don't, when I say things like this, with Indian tradition, when I say something like that, the math needs to establish it. It doesn't matter if you can practically experience uh, an element or not. Is that we have a Samkhya tradition which actually breaks the entire universe and existence into mathematical terms. You can add numbers and you can subtract numbers and you can do maths and everything comes into play. I think one of the great tragedies when in our pursuit for bhakti in the nature, we've taken what we think is the easier path. If they just fall at the Lord's feet, surrender everything. That kind of abject surrender is possible only for a very rare few. It's not most of us can't surrender. So, so, so that and that's the reality in which you, but in the pursuit of that surrender, because today almost every religious teacher in Hinduism also says surrender, surrender, surrender. 
we have lost out on pursuit of maths. So Samkhya, other than saying Samkhya and few books where people will throw a few Sanskrit jargons at you and basically you'll be floored because as soon as somebody speaks Sanskrit, then you don't have any answer to give. But almost nobody understands Samkhya fully. We have no effort to actually understand Samkhya in a more structured manner. Uh, but philosophically and what as a, as a thumb saying that would go around where people say is that Samkhya will break the entire universe into numbers. It will explain how creation happens. It will explain how everything happens. Samkhya is what you use to do temple construction, temple architecture. Samkhya is what you use to do to create food. Samkhya is what you do to create Ayurveda. Samkhya is what you do to do Hatha Yoga or Yoga as you understand it. Samkhya. So mathematically I can break all of this down. And what do you, I mean, for the ease of the listeners, what do you want, what do you mean mathematically breaking it down? I understand the process. Numbers. So, like 2 plus 2 is equal to 4. Like Sadhguru says, Patanjali's yoga is a process which means you do X, Y and Z, you will get so and so results. It's in, whether you believe or you do not believe, it doesn't matter. So, let's. Let you me, do. Let me ex try and explain this in a slightly different context. So Ayurveda. They will say that everything, the same for Ayurvedans is that everything is has medicinal value. Aushadi ka gun hai. Now, if you say Ayurveda, I find it challenging. Bhai, tum trial and error se kitna kar How many times will you look at a monkey eating different things? And figuring out that when it eats this, it dies, and when it eats that, it actually improves health. So trial to does not only improve health, but improves in a specific specific way. So to uh, to do that kind of research, which we tend to sort of look at trial and error base. Just imagine the number of generations mankind ought to have lived and documented each one, because for one success, you'll have a thousand failures. It is not, I, I, I don't think anybody in human history has ever suggested that that is what has happened. But a modern uh, rationalist will say that that is how it has happened because that's how modern physics has been evolved because all cutting edge physics has come out of accidents. Uh, so whether it is electricity, whether it is the radio or it is the telephone, all of this has come out of accidents in some way. But think in terms of and when I, when I use the term modern in that sense, I'm talking about the early 1900s, late 1800s, that science at that time. Today, you will have a hypothesis, you will do a maths and then you will predict that this will happen and then you will make experiments and you will try and determine that the prediction actually happens and then you will try and get laboratory perfect conditions to make it happen because sometimes it will misfire, you will say laboratory conditions are not met. In fact, you will, if you look at the story of science, you will see that some experiments failed in some times, 20 years, 30 years back, but the same thing when repeated now is now succeeding. This, when I talk in terms of Ayurveda, I think somebody figured out the basic way the universe operated. And he didn't need to say that if you eat neem leaf in this quantity, you mix it with sauf and you mix it with dahi, that it cures jaundice. You could actually create, mathematically, you could create a hypothesis that you said if A, B, C, D happened, this will, this will be the outcome. 
So they will look at your architecture, they will break you down in some logical manner and because Samkhya is lost as a science, lost as a tradition, I would say that at some time Samkhya could break an Anand Prasad or a Rahul Devan down into numbers and predict exactly how we react to a certain food. But isn't that what uh, Vata, Pitta, Kapha is about? Yes, yes. It but, is. But Nadi, Nadi Pariksha is about correct. breaking down the person. I'm, I'm not sure I get the mathematics part, so, but I get I so, get the part that it's it's okay. Numbers equivalent so the to… the underlying basis of that science has been lost. Mm -hmm. The practical applicability of that science somewhat has remained. Mm -hmm. It's not perfect. It somewhat has remained in some semblance. So we see it as vata pita We don't know why is it vata. Why is vata so? So in Samkhya they would tell you why vata is so. So it would break it down to its elementary levels. So when I say space time, you point a graph or you plot a graph. All of us do it in school, we plot a graph. So three dimensions, you look at any corner of your room, you can see the three dimensions. And that's your graph. Um, so in school, when the first time they introduced time as dimension, I always struggled out fourth dimension. I always looked around to find that fourth dimension or the fifth dimension. And it was an impossibility. Uh, but that, that is the nature of some of our traditions, is that they were not religious. So if you research this, you will say, somebody will say Samkhya is an atheistic tradition. Because it is basically it's functioning in a very, very rational environment. Now, some those sciences are lost. They are probably there in some scriptures. They are probably there in some texts. But we have gravitated to this bhakti orientation where some of that is lost. Some, some ways of how you could, um, how you could, I, I don't want to use the word exploit because exploit has got a negative connotation to it. But the some ways in which you could sort of exploit or use that science survive today. Uh, but the underlying basis has disappeared. Um, and as I say, it's almost, it's, it, it, is, it, is, it is identical to how we do modern science today. We break it into numbers. We have a hypothesis. We look to find proof for that hypothesis. Uh, and when we find the proof, it becomes perfected science. Until then, it is, so the Big Bang. All of us function on the basis that the Big Bang is the truth. But there are many people who say there are nothing called a Big Bang. So they are alternate truths. Now you keep trying to prove Big Bang through various methodologies. This is the form of tradition. Now when you look at the Big Bang and when you are approaching concepts like the Big Bang, you are not thinking religion, are you? So this is... When, when I think in terms of caveman, as, assuming we came from uh, apes, caveman, and as you begin to experience the world, you try and understand it, you break it down, you break it down into metaphysical and physical levels. Um, and you sort of, you put some logic and rational to it. You create repetitiveness out of that breakage, which is then process or which is then science. And you were able to do it. Some of it has gotten lost for various reasons. A lot of science will get lost as we go by. But non-stop, all our traditions will tell you that there has been a science to it. There will be repeatability process. That repeatability is what I describe 
when I use the term science or process or, or, or outcome, outcome orientation, is that I could do things to make it rain. Uh, I could, it doesn't mean that 100% of the time I repeat the ritual, it will happen. Most times it will happen. Sometimes just the clouds will come and they will go away. Uh, sometimes even that will not happen. It's like anything. It's like going to a doctor. Sometimes I'll get fully cured and sometimes nothing. It has zero impact on me. That does not make it non-science. So the test in the way I would look at it, the test for what is science or not is are you capable of breaking it down, one in terms of repeatability and two in terms of maths. And if it is math, if you can break it down into math, then whether you can experience it or not is irrelevant because the math works. But isn't it the other way around, Anand? Because here the re repeatability of the process is about, is reinforces the experience for doesn't matter who. So it's not as if whether you experience it or not. So I understand where you're going with this, that in the, in the modern or cutting edge science, world, uh, x number of dimensions or infinite dimensions exist and it's mathematically proven the world would not get into existence uh, without that. There is no way gravity could happen or the universe could. Oh, phones would not work, computers would not work, the internet would not exist. Why? <laughs> well, how it's that? all on the basis of cutting edge science. You know, I understand, but so it's still Newtonian science. Here it is still Newtonian so science. So let's look at the phone itself when you feel it, its yeah. dimensions, when Apple sells it to you, it is Newtonian, they tell you this one dimension, this, that and the other. How the electronics is working? Now what is electronics? What is, what is electronics? So how the electronics is working? How do they predict the maths for the electronics? How do they make it work? Uh, is also the underlying reality of our cutting edge science is in the realm of quantum physics and in the realm of Einsteinian physics and what lies in the future is theoretical physics. So string theory etc all theoretical physics uh, but our modern day existence um, uh, is completely how electrons work whether an atom is a particle or is it a wave. I mean so the fact that Matter has dual nature, uh, informs a lot of our practical living world. Uh, so, so that's what I'm talking about is that, but I don't experience the table as a wave. I but that does not mean that, that the wave does not exist. That does not mean and, and the maths works that the table is wave and somebody can use the table and make it into a chair. I mean, they can be a math for it. Yes. Indian theory. But the Indian experience is around that you will experience the table as a wave to yes. use an analogy, yes. right? Yes. You do. So I was very interestingly right, and this will take us into the otherworldly dimension of our conversations, triggered by some of our conversations and uh, sort of listening a lot to, more to Sri Guru Rohit Arya's uh, videos recently. You know, I generally happen to, I don't know, YouTube recommended a video out of the blue to me and I very curiously went and saw the video. This is about uh, a person who is doing the sadhana of 
Bagla Mukhi Devi. I've never heard of her. But it was scary. It was deeply occult. And this person is describing that he did a sadhana for 12 days with the ritual of wearing a certain type of clothes at a certain time at night and so on and so forth. And this person describes that what's happening to him through as he progresses. Seven, eight days, nothing. He's doing his sadhana very nicely. On the eighth or ninth day, something like that. I don't know the exacts of it. He starts feeling somebody in the room. And he says that as if somebody is constantly watching me. And he says, I just cannot get over that feeling. It stays on for two, three hours, then it disappears. And that happened for two, three nights. And then suddenly he says, I start seeing the Devi. She's my, as I'm sitting in my Padmasan or my Sukhasan and sitting and doing my Japa, uh, I'm scared to look on my right because there is a fierce looking woman sitting here who it seems is Kali and her knee is pressing my knee. I can feel it, but I am so terrified So in my terrified, I am looking at the Devi. He had a Murti of the Devi in front who is worshipping. Uh, I don't know what Bagla Mukhi Sadhana is, but I am guessing it's some form of Devi, of course. Uh, whether it is Kali or I don't know. And so he says, sees a terrible form of Kali as is described with her bones coming out and you know, really in a hairs spread out, very, very fierce, uh, uh, emaciated if you like, right? And then he progresses to another day and then the form changes. Another day it is her sitting in front of him and he's, he's, he's now avoiding looking at her because he just cannot see her. He is so terrified, so he keeps looking at the murti. But he continues with his sadhana. And she, she keeps looking at him for three hours, four hours, middle of the night. On another day, she starts kicking him. She's kicking his chest and he says, I, my, my mala gets thrown, I get pushed back uh, several feet and I quietly come up and start doing my sadhana again. Then on another day, she talks to him. Why Okay. And then he is uh, so terrified that he says, I'm going to give it up. I can't take this anymore. And then somehow his guru appears in his vision and whatever, and he gets motivated to do it another night. And he says, on that night, when I finally, this beautiful woman with a very pleasing aroma or whatever comes into the room and sits next to me, and I have just overwhelmed with a feeling of love and comfort and whatever. And so he says, I completed my sadhana and uh, then I am motivated or fearless to speak to this woman and ask, who are you? She says, I am Bagla Mukhi. You have been doing my sadhana. Kya tujhe? And then he asks for something, ki meri job promotion ho jai, which I thought was very ridiculous after doing all this <laughs> promotion and winning in debates. And I felt ridiculous. I thought she would have, I mean, he's achieved something beyond this. Anyways, but so these are the type of conversations, uh, you know, based on our conversations, I, I started to look up a little bit. And I know, for example, Ramana, Maha, sorry, Ramakrishna saw Kali. So when somebody, Vivekananda asks her, okay, do you see God? He says, yes, you know, it's, it's real for her. 
I know in your conversations you've said Advaita or non-dualism is humbug. Everything is Sakara Radhana. So maybe we can leave the audience with a little bit of snippet into sort of what is coming next in our conversations. And so when you talk, so um, see, there will always what will happen is that there will always be people who will say you're imagining this, yeah. so this particular experience, and there is no getting away. So when you therefore what you will find is lots of people who experience things will not discuss it because they know that it's going to be difficult for people to accept. Now the way I look at this, the way I describe this, and again I don't know if it's going to be a good enough example when I when I describe it like this. I'll give you two examples uh, and maybe I've, we've discussed it in the past, is that I go to an art gallery, uh, other people also go to an art gallery. Some people find the beauty in some paintings, I find it trash. <laughs> I can't believe that people are paying so much money for some art. Um, and I am very happy to buy something for 10,000 rupees. It looks nice and pretty and etc. And that is good enough art for me or 20,000 rupees. But some people are buying art for crores of rupees. Obviously to me, I mean it is ridiculous. So I am also thinking of them like that. I'm Here what I am describing is we tend to take away from people the fact that they are having an experience that we have not had. Uh, so you say that your experience is bogus, basically if, I, if you cannot make me experience it, I will, I discount your experience. It happens, I mean I do the same thing to the guy who goes to an art gallery. What I know for certain is, and it's again a learned science, you can taste wine of different kinds. All of us have read about it. You read how much you want, you will not be able to figure out how wine tasting will work until you actually go through the process and you taste it, you, you start registering the difference and it happens over a few years. I still don't claim that I am very good at it. There are many people, many of my friends, many other people are much better at it. So when I go to a restaurant, I tell them, please, you choose. But I can clearly make out the difference between different kinds of wine now. So I am not at their level of sophistication, but I am much better than lots of others who can't make out the difference between a whiskey and a lots of people who can't make out the difference between a whiskey and a rum. So, uh, or two different kinds of beers. For them, all beer is the same. But that is reality. I mean, the fact is that for them, so what I am trying to point to over here is that there are certain finer sensibilities that might come into existence which sometimes might come intuitively, but mostly have got to be learned. Uh, you cannot say that, oh, I go to a temple, everything must happen to me. You are not entitled to anything in life. So you want to be a professional, go to a college, go study, fine tune yourself, go through the experience of a job, fine tune your skill and trade. And that is what makes you the professional that you are. I see so many guys who come out of law college and I mean the early days you pretend as if you know everything. Suddenly after you see them after a year their humbleness is dawned on them. <laughs> they realize that you actually don't know anything. So this is the kind of experience that I that we tend to when, we, when it's a religious spiritual context we tend to sort of be skeptical of some of these experiences and no reason why you should not be because again as I say 
the true the if there is any one true teaching in hinduism it is to say that experience it yourself don't accept something because somebody else says so follow the path if it doesn't deliver then it doesn't then you experience that it is bogus at least for you it is bogus it may work for somebody else uh, so there is healthy skepticism is a good thing it is only skepticism otherwise we go to blind faith uh, and which almost, if i may say is a semitic path uh, correct almost none of the indian traditions talk about blind faith i i'm discount the teachers in the last 500 years uh, because those have been influenced by various things but but we have no idea of faith we have no idea of belief we have only an idea of experience whether it is ritual whether it is philosophy whether it is deity and the one other thing before we end that i mean i think it was just an incredible example that this guy gave um, this professor in uh, theoretical physics in columbia university brian green he put it in another context but i sort of could see how some and again to say how what you hear in indian tradition and what you uh, what you encounter in physics is that in indian tradition we have got the satyogtha treta yogta dwapartha abhi hum kalyug mein and they say that satyog mein gods walked on the earth walked on the planet almost all old traditions have a time when gods walked on the planet and then it sort of goes away it and i think in terms of and brian green is describing the big bang and is describing what is happening in the big bang every object is moving away from the other and he says when you think in the you look at the sky today you see a bunch of stars you see a bunch of constellations put another 5000 years between now and then some of those stars would have receded so far away that even at the speed of light because the the expansion is faster than the speed of light so even at the speed of light the light from those stars will not get to you so basically those will become dark patches so in 5000 years the world the sky will look different in another so many thousand or million years there will be zero stars in the sky now let's assume that i have written a poetry today oh there was a beautiful sky with stars and somebody after a million years looks at my poetry you say humbug hai i am not saying that that was true that the gods did walk this planet was true but you cannot discount the idea that the universe in multiple dimensions is expanding our gods everybody will tell you are not three dimensional gods they exist in different dimensions every tradition will tell you that they exist in three dimensions you cannot experience yahovah or allah actually they are unexperienceable none of our deities are experienceable in a material sense when this person in the example that he gave is describing the devi sitting next to him there is some other facet of his senses that are opened up that allow him to sense a being which is not sense and see a being which is in another dimension i'm sure if you take a photograph you'll see nothing there uh, but that is the different you're beginning your eyes are opening into new dimensions in the universe which science tells us is there but this brian green example is what came across so profoundly to me is that as the universe expands the stars will disappear and somebody who looks up at the sky will say that the guy who wrote the poetry describing stars was bogus because he is functioning he is not taking into account that the universe is expanding he is functioning in theoretical newtonian physics he is saying that what i can't see does not exist prove it to me 
Now, how will anybody who can only function in a three-dimensional force sense get you to travel at a speed faster than light and show you that there is a star? It is not a possibility. So there is, I mean, it is unprovable, but merely because there is no evidence doesn't mean that it is not fact. So the lack of evidence is not proof of fact, uh, to the contrary. Uh, and so that's kind of what I really Excellent. Appreciate. So we'll, we'll pause this conversation <laughs> over here and uh, hopefully next time, um, you know, with this sort of a hook, we will get into conversations of, um, we say gods these days, but there is no term called gods. We have only devas, devi, and uh, like Anand said, perhaps beings, sentient beings in other dimensions, uh, which in our scientific modern worldview, we firstly do not have access to. And so prove this to me does not work. It is to be experienced. You follow a certain process and it is to be experienced. So we'll get into, uh, in the following conversations, we'll get into uh, aspects of, if you like, Hinduism, Indian traditions like that. Uh, into devas, into probably temples, into murti puja, and uh, you have a, a yantra. yantra, yantra here. So we'll get into sort of conversations. Yeah. I don't know how they will flow, sure. but we'll allow it to happen over one or five yeah, conversations. Yeah. We don't yeah. know. Thank you very much, Anand. Yeah. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> Hopefully, right. our audience as well. Right. Thank you very much. Thank Namaste. you.